Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Another day, another opportunity for a Red Tree Pod. Chris, it is good to see you, my friend. Good to see you, Davis. Welcome back to you. Thank well. you. Here we yeah, go. good. Good to be back. What is going on yeah. in the in Walkerland? Oh, this week's going pretty well. I've had a lot of car trouble, so that's not that great. That doesn't but, sound well. Um, normal aside from it's not. Yeah, it's actually abnormal because of that. I've had a good stretch without it, but uh, we have a, a Sienna Toyota Sienna van that rides low, and so we've realized in a very snowy winter. Uh, it causes some bumper ah. <laughs> or, or wheel well issues. So yeah, that's not been fun, but it's, uh, I, I've been thinking this week, it's kind of an Ecclesiastes moment for me of vanity of vanities kind of idea, of fu- uh, futility of all futilities, uh, type thing where it just, uh, it keeps happening. Cars will do that to you, but, but it's, uh, it's a good thing. Drives me back to, back to grace there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the need for something outside of that, I guess, to, to be enough. I just me, picture but. you listening to low rider on repeat as you drive yeah. through Moses top. <laughs> that would have been more fun. Yeah. If I had that plane, <laughs> but, um, anyway, how are you? Uh, How's life in your, your, uh, your life? Yeah, these days? Things, things are pretty good. I just got back from a, a little kind of, it wasn't a vacation. It was for work, but, uh, I got to play some pickleball down in warmer weather with a friend of mine uh, at a retirement community, and we lost miserably many times. <laughs> Two retirees. Two retirees. <laughs> they are very good at pickleball. Very they, good. They at play it. nine to noon every day, so that oh. makes at least that's what I'm telling myself uh, to nurse yeah. the wound of losing so right. <laughs> demonstrably. Uh, and then when I did uh, speaking of car troubles, when I returned my rental car, there was a nice fat ding on the side of it that I have I have zero idea where it came from. Uh, it's my story and I'm sticking to it. Really. I, I actually have no idea. He just showed it. He did a big circle on it. He's like, uh, we're going to have to report this. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. Do you have a picture of it before I got the car? Cause <laughs> I didn't, right. I don't, I have no idea. And so now from, from this point forward, I'm going to do a 60 second video of the car before I get in. Cause yeah, I wish I would have just had a little evidence a of like, man, I don't, yeah. I don't think this happened, but I right. have no no evidence to prove otherwise. So probably got a, a nice little expense coming my way. So that's too bad. You and I can yeah. complain together about car troubles, even if they're not our own car. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not going to go it's away. Not. Car complaints, that's for not sure. The side of glory. But, but we're not talking about cars today. We're talking about rising axe heads. That's right. If you were wondering, we're going to turn to Second Kings six today. Probably one of the more obscure passages in the Old Testament. After that, we'll hang out in Psalm 25. Then we'll close out 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and that'll be in chapter 5. And then our what about passage is be holy as I am holy from 1 Peter. So looking forward to that. But to begin with, I, I want us to read this 2 Kings 6 verses 1 to 7. I'll just read the, the latter half of it because it is short. But it is one of these very obscure stories 
with the prophet Elisha. That's not to be confused with Elijah, who goes before him. Uh, thank you for the, the names there, writers of the scriptures, or I guess, <laughs> is that a knock on God? I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't knock on Maybe. <laughs> the names are so similar. They're, they're so easy to confuse, but Elijah is the second prophet to come. Better than Bob and Jerry, that probably. That's true. So. <laughs> more Hebraic it's names. More Hebraic, yeah. Uh, but you get this obscure story with Elijah. It's a strange miracle uh, in a seemingly small um, problem, but he solves it and he cares a lot about it. So this is this is in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 beginning in verse four. It says, they went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron ax head fell into the water. Oh no, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God, that, that being Elijah, asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. So I, I think for starters, it's worth pointing out that when Elisha is doing a miracle, it uh, is worth slowing down and going, what's happening here? Because he's a guy who's who's the second to come as, as a major prophet in uh, the first and second Kings stories. And it kind of always has this John the Baptist to Jesus vibe, vibe, meaning John the Baptist is very articulately connected to Elijah in the New Testament. Uh, when he first hits the scene, he's he's showing up wearing clothes that resemble Elisha. He's in the Jordan River where Elijah left. And I think eating locusts, eating locusts and honey, too, they both yeah, do that, yeah, their diets are so similar. And, and then the Old Testament ends on the note of a promise of an Elijah-like figure to come. And the New Testament begins with the story of John the right. Baptist in the, in the Jordan River uh, baptizing people. And so the, the Elijah, Elijah, John the Baptist connection is very strong. And I think it's always meant to drive us towards the Elisha-Jesus connection, the one who's going to come after. Yes. And so whenever we have a miracle like this, it is worth slowing down and going, how is this going to resemble something of what we're going to see in Jesus? And do we get some angles on the cross, some facets of that diamond of the gospel uh, that might be here in the Old Testament? And so with that in mind, where, where, where yeah. might you go with this floating Axehead story, Chris. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think one thing kind of on an allegorical level, um, you know, off the question of, you know, what else does wood and, and, and do sticks kind of teach us? Or what else does, does the Bible say about them? What do they teach us there? You know, I think in a lot of stories you see, um, you see that they exemplify, trees as well, they exemplify the cross on some level, that it's it's no mistake that, you know, uh, Abraham's son Isaac was carrying wood on his back up, up Mount Moriah, mm-hmm. and then later all those connections the Bible makes to Jesus being uh, like the son, the willing sacrifice, the second Isaac who would carry wood on his back up the, the hill of Calvary or Golgotha. And so I think like in that vein, like kind of using that to interpret this passage, I think the stick is uh, a type of cross. I think that, uh, as we look at a problem being remedied by a cross-like object, uh, that really is the story of scripture. That That is the thing that comes in between all of the problems of humanity, all the problems or questions or lost things of the Old Testament, and the newness and salvation of the new era that we live in now. And so it, it makes sense that we would see not just anything thrown in the water, but we would see um, a stick. Uh, I'd also add that the stick is, uh, is um, and it's it, the word is careful here to 
to say it was cut. And so it's uh, an harmed stick, I think, in that sense. It reminds us of Jesus, who, uh, so we have a cross like image, but I think it also exemplifies Jesus himself, who, like the rock that was struck in Exodus and poured forth water, and like the Bible clearly connects that in 1 Corinthians 10 4 with Jesus saying the rock was Christ. I think in the same vein, we have a harmed object here, not just an object, but a cut or a harmed object that was, that, that brought forth resolution and that allowed a lost thing to, to be found. So thoughts from you though, Davis, anything I, off of that? I love that, bro. I think that's, it's surprising uh, to have these minor details all of a sudden just kind of jump off the page in light of the gospel. And mm-hmm. I think uh, many nowadays have a, a little bit of a yellow flag go up when allegory is brought in the conversation, but yeah. uh, certainly you have the apostle Paul in Galatians for training us to go, Hey, go back to these things and expect there to be a layer beneath the surface that draws out gospel realities and that it's, like you said, these, this is not an accident when words like this are used and it's meant to cause you to slow down and ponder them, especially in light of that greater story. And I think in light of that, you have a heavy thing that is lost. So you have this iron axe head that is the thing that's actually sunk into the bottom of the sea. And I mean, big picture, you have um, in the beginning of the story, the, the God himself, in one sense, losing that which is his, that sinking into the sea of sin and being compared, I mean, human beings, uh, us as the, the characters in the story, representing kind of this axe head of, of being lost. Uh, certainly you have Jesus in his parables making a big deal about inanimate objects that have been lost uh, or leased or little or um, so, so often he's bringing these, these concepts up to go, this is the thing I'm after. This is what I've come to do. And so in, in Luke 15, you have the lost coin, uh, as this inanimate object that he that he gives an example of what he's ultimately here to do, which evolves into the lost sheep that the shepherd is going to pursue and leaves the 99 to go and get, uh, culminating in the lost son, which is kind of so close to the center of ultimately Jesus's heart to come and save. And so at a macro level, certainly I think you have this miracle of, of a cross-like image that's cut to raise from the dead, to raise from that which is lost so that it could be found uh, here in this obscure Old Testament Bible story. So macro grace, uh, I think you have this picture of, of God's heart for lost things that Jesus definitely embodies in his own ministry and that he's come to find that which is lost. And that's going to be at grace, great cost to himself. But I think also beneath that, you have uh, maybe what we might call micro grace. If macro grace is kind of the vertical image of us being lost and Jesus coming to save I think you, you can just slow down in this passage and, and feel the guys uh, who lost the axe head. You can feel his psychological fear, his tension of like, I, I, this wasn't mine. And, you know, I imagine in, at that time, that's probably a pretty expensive object that belongs to a friend. And so there's this harmed relationship as a result of this. But I think in light of, of the gospel, it invites us to double click on those parts of our life that have that uh-oh feeling, that fearful, oh no, I, what have I done? Um, I, I actually even just heard this week that there are two kind of primal fears. And the more I've thought about it, the more I think this is true, that at the end of the day, there are these two primal fears that kind of govern us are a fear of failure on the one hand, and secondarily, a fear of being alone. Um, and interestingly, I think this guy has, has both of them in the story, a fear of failure of losing this thing that doesn't belong to him, but that ultimately leading to aloneness in this friendship that whoever extended the ex had to him. And so uh, what does this mean for us? Well, it means go to those places, I think, where, where you have a fear of failure right now, um, a fear of being alone right now. And what are the ways that 
God himself might be throwing the cut stick over that. Um, in other words, don't be distracted. Don't try to cover up those places of fear, those uh-ohs. This story is here in the scriptures as a, uh, a flashing light of, you don't have a story if the guy doesn't have the uh-oh feeling, right? And so too for us, uh, all day long, we're governed by these fears left and right. Don't run from them. Go to them. Tell them. Mm. Confess them. And then uh, allow somebody around you maybe to, to bring the cut stick to allow this thing to float. So good. Maybe just to add a quick cherry on top of that. Uh, it's and to not like bury the biblical theological lead here is that, you know, the guy didn't get it himself, right. right? Like Elisha, I mean, Elisha did in one sense, but he, I mean, he did as a prophet, but the stick somehow made it float, you know? And so it's extremely significant that, that Elisha doesn't say, well, dive in and get it. Let me just shine a light down there and kind of help expose it a bit and kind of guide you. But, you know, this man was completely at the mercy of the help of a prophet, just like we all are in our sins. We're completely at the mercy of the help of Jesus. And it's by grace we're saved, not by our ability to swim or identify or dive or hold our breath or uh, or make some kind of miracle uh, happen uh, to reconcile ourselves with God, but it's completely based on Jesus and his work for us on the cross. That's a good word. Uh, let's turn the page then to Psalm 25. This is a little bit of a longer psalm. Um, so I'm just going to kind of hop around. It begins with uh, David saying, In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. And then it skips ahead. I'm going to jump to verse 12. It says, um, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear them. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. So just jumped ahead because, yeah, for the sake of time, this, yeah, is, a lo- this okay. is a long one. But yeah, uh, yeah where, where are you going to take us here with Psalm 25? Great, Great Psalm. Yeah. I, a couple of maybe low-hanging fruit observations off the first couple of verses. You know, when David says, I trust in you, uh, by definition, he's not saying I trust in me. Right? And so there's this, there's this, uh, this is like the epitome of, you might say New Testament worship or, or faithful, um, humble, right worship that God, that God is pleased by, you know, it's uh, coming empty handed and saying, I don't trust in anything I've done. I don't trust in who I am. I don't believe in myself. Uh, I, I trust in you completely. And then he adds in verse two, do not let me be put to shame. I was, uh, when I read this and other Psalms highlight this a lot too, I, I think you, what you never see the Bible do is, is, is say that the law is, able to, to do that. You don't see the Bible say the law is able to take away my shame. Uh, it's always the opposite. Kind of like uh, one of Noah's sons after the flood, uh, when uh, Ham exposed his nakedness and laughed and, and took a picture of it, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, it's, uh, the, he, he's a law figure in that story. I think it's the same thing where you see uh, shame is something only God can remedy. And we can't, uh, the law can't, what we do. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. The law is the thing that actually makes or exposes our nakedness uh, internally and spiritually and, and otherwise. And so here you just see this 
blatant running to God to be covered by the blanket of, of his love. So um, I would start with that. Um, and then maybe, tr- maybe turn to you, Davis, to see other things that you're, you're looking at. Yeah, I think uh, whenever the Psalms bring up enemy language, it's always just an opportunity to kind of camp out in the 21st century and go, what does this mean? Because I, I find in ministry that uh, it's either, when, when we read this, it's either, you know, you think of that one person, or, or maybe you have a few uh, on your short list, who you have a really hard time with. Maybe someone's harmed a family member. And so like you just see red when you think of their, that person's name. So you really feel like, man, I really have a physical enemy that this person and comes to mind. Um, not everyone has that. In fact, more people probably don't have that than do, uh, but some of us do. And, uh, and so it makes the enemy language in the Psalms even more distant, even more difficult to hold onto and grasp and make sense of. Um, but this is here to show us that we do have enemies um, and they're not physical enemies. The, the New Testament is very clear on this. You don't wrestle with flesh and blood. You, it's not at the end of the day, a physical army that's after you. But make no mistake, as the day is long, you have enemies. In fact, you have more enemies than David did physically. David had armies pursuing him. And the scriptures are going out of their way to show you and I that we are being pursued by forces that are stronger than us, better at fighting, you know, fiery dart type language that are going after your heart and and often surrounding you and winning whatever battle you're in with them. Um because most of the time we don't even realize we're in a battle. And so I love it whenever this is here in the Psalms and it's everywhere in the Psalms because it is kind of this giant um, flashing uh, neon sign that's trying to say, do you recognize that you're surrounded? Not only do you have enemies, but you're surrounded. Like you're in the deep muck of a battle without even realizing it on, on all sides. And so with that in mind, where where then do you turn? I think this is what's so helpful about these Psalms is they don't let you get away with thinking, okay, well, now I just need to go back to school or get my Brazilian jiu-jitsu belt and fight these enemies because they can't be fought physically. And if you try, you're going to lose. Uh, instead, you need to look up and look outside of yourself. And I, I just am so impressed with the way this Psalm ends. It's just such a ring of, uh, a siren of faith, really, that, that David is looking outside of himself, ultimately onto God saying, my eyes are ever on the Lord. What does this look like? Well, it looks like language where all the verbs are attached to God. And it's such good news. So I'm just going to read uh, from 16 on, and not, not the whole verses, but just the, the verse themselves. It's David saying to God, turn to me and be gracious to me. Relieve the troubles of my heart. Free me from anguish. Take away all my sins. Look on my affliction. Guard my life. Rescue me. Deliver Israel, O God, from all her troubles. It's just constant language of rescue and deliverance and and help uh, that ultimately come from from God himself. And we know on on this side of the cross that it's Jesus who is ultimately going to be harmed to allow us to have his deliverance. So we might even have clarity that we are in a spiritual war. Um, to even be alive in God is is actually the first step to recognizing you have an enemy and Christ is the one who is going to conquer them for us. So we get to say with David, Jesus, you have turned to me. You have been gracious to me. Now relieve me of these troubles, these, troubles, these anxieties, these enemies that are constant pursuit of me. Uh, help me see afresh with new new vision of of all that you have accomplished on Calvary for us. And may you give me a new dose of grace for today because today's grace is all we are, are promised. Love that. Yeah, also in verse six, remember your great mercy, but verse seven, don't remember my sins, you know, kind of just to add on to that. Like it's just a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful prayer and, and rich theology that Christ 
makes possible. Like it's um, if if we stopped at this point in the story, there uh, according to Hebrews in the New Testament, there would actually still be this uh, kind of commemoration and remembrance of sin because the law drives a remembrance of sin. It's because the sacrifices need to be done every year and, and even every day. It's this constant reminder that we we are our own biggest problem, mm-hmm. that we are we are full of sin. Uh, and But this, what, what David's saying with one eye on the New Testament that's still to come, is he's saying there's a time coming when God will forget our sins, where he'll remove it as far as the East is from the West. Uh, and it must be an era of grace, because if it's left up to us and our obedience, uh, there will always be a constant neon flashing sign of our sin and, and that we're the problem and that we can't fix it. But because we're saved by grace and the blood of Jesus, uh, the era is coming where God will forget sin. Like it, it's that that clean of a slate, that that much of a wipe of, of the dirt off of our soul that will happen forever. And that, that law being a, a, a good thing, like we often talked about even on this podcast. It's so, yeah. whenever you make law grace distinctions, it's so easy to miss here and think, well, you're saying the law is so bad. It's like, no, the law is a great thing. The main purpose of the law is even to reveal this enemy, <laughs> the, the fact yeah. that we are surrounded by forces that are so much stronger than us. And so, no, that's, right. it's a good thing. It's, it's ultimately, though, to be replaced by the fact that these enemies have been uh, beaten down ultimately in the death of Jesus. And that this, uh, another just call out here in verse six, it says, remember Lord, your great mercy and love for they are from of old. I think this is such a surprising uh, call out of the big storyline that though there is a movement from old to new in the covenants themselves, you get these kind of surprising uh, nods back from the new Testament to the old to say that ultimately the gospel is older even than the law. That mercy, God's great mercy and love are from of old, even older than the old covenant. You see this in Abraham, who was promised the gospel beforehand, before the law even hits the scene. Uh, But you also see this in the priesthood that Abraham takes a knee to when he meets Melchizedek, that that ultimately is Jesus's priesthood, according to Hebrews. And we'll have to do a whole episode on that because that's some... That's right. the meat of the scriptures, as the author of <laughs> Hebrews says. I, I want to move on to the meat. And the meat is Melchizedek. He's a surprising figure who brings grace into perspective and ultimately says the new covenant is actually older than the old covenant, which it's uh, it's it's great theology, but it's bad math because old and new right. and older and new. Yep. <laughs> right. right. Love it. All right. Let's go back to the New Testament here and we'll hang out in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 to 28. This is how we're closing out this awesome letter. And I'm just going to read it because it's nice and short. It says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Great way to end a letter. Grace gets the final word, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is uh, a good, good news for us, uh, tired and weary. Mm-hmm sinners, right? That grace is the final word over salvation. I know Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible ends that way as well. It's, it's, a, it's a wish of grace, a prayer mm-hmm. uh, upon, upon the people of God. And so uh, great, way to, great way to end a book, end a story, end a letter. If you're, if you're a pastor like this, you know, who's kind of separated from people he loves, friends in Christ and uh, a flock of sorts, he planted this church in Thessalonica. And so uh, this is what you want them to ultimately know, you know, and there's a lot he had to say about Christian living and about the gospel and about how those things go together. And, and that's, 
that's all great. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the gospel that underlines all of it and gives meaning to all the instruction and all of the, uh, the gospel reminders. So, um, Maybe as like a kind of a deep dive into that, the uh, the, the the prayers the, the prayers he has he asks for a prayer, but then he says uh, he wants the church to greet each other as well, which is kind of a neat thing because it kind of reminds us on that divine level of sorts that God has greeted us. He's not afar; he speaks our language. He said he said he has said hello in Christ, and even has greeted us as gently as as a kiss, you know, uh, which is a cultural, basically like a warm handshake of the day where, you know, today we might grab someone's hand and then take the other hand and grab their shoulder and bring them in for a hug. Like it's, it's that kind of a greeting that we have with God now because of how much Jesus has saved us in a one-way love, not at all based on our effort, but in a one-way love uh, that he can greet us that way. He can, you can run out of the Holy of Holies and greet sinners, his, his enemies, his former enemies who are now sons and daughters. He can greet them that way because the gospel is so powerful and so much from him and not us. Yeah. And I, I think the, uh, calling out the fact that the, the letter ends on grace again, is this, we have moved away from the old, the law, the onto the new, which is marked by grace. And we're not returning now to a message of now go do this and live. It's instead grace gets the final word and it's to mm-hmm. be breathed in and believed. Um, I, I came across a note from Luther's commentary on Galatians uh, on a similar note when he was talking about um, the grace and peace from from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is how the, the Apostle Paul opens the letter to Galatians. Pretty similar to how he's ending here where he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I just want to read that excerpt from Luther's commentary there because it's such a skippable verse. I mean, so often we read these and we're like, yep, Jesus and God, they have grace towards us. That's That's great. Uh, but Luther slows us down and goes, no, 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 pay attention to this because you and I buy into um, imposter forms of this, thinking that it's going to bring us rest and relief and ultimately what we're after in life. But this is the substance of life. This is the stuff that your life is meant to run on. It's fuel. Uh, it funds your life, in other words. So let me just read this. He says, the apostle does not wish the Galatians grace and peace from the emperor or from kings or from governors, but from God the Father. He wishes them heavenly peace, the kind of which Jesus spoke when he said, peace I leave unto you, my peace I give unto you. Worldly peace provides quiet enjoyment of life and possessions, but in affliction, particularly in the hour of death, the grace and peace of the world will not deliver us. However, the grace and peace of God will. They make a person strong and courageous to bear and to overcome all difficulties, even death itself, because we have the victory of Christ's death and the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. So I I just love the way he's weaving together this grace that comes from God, from Jesus himself, not from the world, um, and ultimately the peace that he extends to us, very similar to the way uh, the Apostle Paul is closing this letter saying, may God himself, the God of peace, in case you were wondering, may he be the one that's going to sanctify you. Uh, and, And again, this is verse 23, sanctify you through and through. So this is God talking about the way that we become holy, which is going to be a good intro to where we're going next. Um, And that ultimately this is God's business. He's made it his business to make his people holy. And that he's going to be the one who's going to see that project through to the end. So another way to think about it, uh, theologians have used this phrase for for a long time, is is that sanctification ultimately is the art of getting used to justification. In other words, we're learning how to believe the gospel, believe that God really did come to earth to die for your sins and has raised again to new life so that you are totally free in him. But do, do not use that freedom for evil. Uh, ultimately, this is what it looks like to get used to in every sphere of your life where you and I are trying to justify ourselves. So may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. Such a healthy, helpful note to end on. 
with that, let's maybe wrap up with our but what about section for the day. This is going to come from 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16. The be holy as I'm holy. And, and here's the verse in context. It says, starting in verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And he's quoting from Leviticus 11 there. So again, in our but what about section here of the podcast, we want to take on these verses that we've heard from you guys or we've run into in our own ministries where people kind of bring up a, but what about this? If you guys are saying that ultimately at the end of the day, the gospel is the most important thing and you're sanctified by grace. But what about sections that are talking about be holy as I am holy, for instance? So Chris, where would you begin with this passage. It's a great, but what about, yeah, it's a common one. It's a tough passage I think, for any Christian, no matter where they are kind of on the spectrum of, you know, uh, viewing law, grace, distinction and stuff like that. I mean, it's because no Christian's going to look at this and say, and actually think that they can be as holy as God uh, on their own, <laughs> you know? And so either it's, you know, it's somehow tweaked or adjusted, or there's an asterisk put by it, or it's watered down, or as we would say, uh, we think we need to read it through New Testament eyes. And so the question I bring to this passage uh, when Peter quotes from Leviticus is the God who said, be holy because I am holy, be holy as I am holy. The question I would bring is, where does that God live now in the New Testament era? And the answer to that is inside the Christian, which was not the case in, in the Old Testament. And so that is a massive, that's a seismic shift there in terms of how the law now speaks almost like is uh, in a different way in, into the New Testament era. It, it becomes less of something to strive for as though it's outside of us, as though that holy God lives outside of us and he is over there in the temple and he's literally, a, you know, a, a, across the field or, or across the plain and I can travel to him and like that idea is is gone now in, in the New Testament era because of Jesus. Now he lives inside of us. And so it becomes less of a striving and more of a reality to live out of. So be holy as the holy God who himself lives within you is holy and who is exerting his holiness out from you as you live your life and, and you think about the gospel and get used to justification, as you were saying before, and grow in grace, as Paul so commonly says throughout all of his letters, be strong in grace and get and get used to that one-way love idea that it might change you uh, from, from the inside out. So that'd be kind of the first thing I would yeah. add, is just to kind of read it that I love way. that. And I, I'd also add that this is a uh, passage that doesn't exist in a vacuum. So this doesn't just stand alone. First Peter's message is not be holy as God is holy. Uh, because we would misinterpret what Peter is actually trying to say and ultimately what God as the capital A author is trying to say in this passage. But fortunately, we don't have it just as that phrase. Instead, it is uh, actually sandwiched in the gospel. I mean, the passage right before it is that very famous passage where Peter is talking about the salvation that God has brought through Jesus is what the prophets were even writing about. It's the very sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. This is what, we, what they preached to us, and they didn't even know they were writing about it, right? So he's saying this gospel is actually hidden all the way back in the Old Testament, and maybe it has something to do with what we see in Leviticus with regards to be holy. So then he says, be holy as I am holy from Leviticus. And then in the next very paragraph, he's talking about the very, the redeemed way of life, or excuse me, the fact that we were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to us from our ancestors by the precious blood of Christ, that Jesus himself was chosen before the creation of the world. Again, there's that love and mercy from of old that we heard in Psalm 25 language, that always this was God's plan A. And so when you're talking about holy, 
holiness, it's really important to say, uh, be holy like God is holy. Okay, what is God like? Well, he has shown us what he's like through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you're thinking about holiness apart from Jesus, you're not thinking about holiness in the way the scriptures are training us to. They're drawing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ to go, holiness is like this guy. This is the guy who was set apart. Look at him, behold him, and be changed by him. And maybe even be surprised by the way holiness is defined based on what he has done and ultimately what he has done for us in his death. And so in my mind, I, if you start there, you just start to see um, kind of these old ways of thinking about holiness get replaced by the refreshment of, the, of gospel holiness, we could say. So things like uh, a movement from abstain from to uh, pouring out your life like Jesus did. A movement away from uh, self-trust to trusting in God. Uh, A movement away from being divided over capital T truths and our perspectives on what we think is happening in the world and what God really wants to us, to striving towards unity based on the fact that Jesus's blood covers his whole family. And so at the end of the day, you can link arms regardless of your differences and disagreements. Uh, A movement towards the way that God showed us that he is pursuing the least, the last, the little, and the lost things of this world. Uh, that's, that is what holiness actually even looks like. He showed it to us over and over again. It's a movement towards proximity to God ultimately through like what you were describing, the fact that he now resides in you. Right. And in his people. So I would say being holy is to be around the people of God, just even be close to them, to, to assemble with them on Sundays, to, to worship, to take communion, not by yourself, but in community. That's an act of holiness, I think, as well, because, again, they are the body of our, our local churches are the body of Christ to us. Right. And, and we are to them. So we're all a part of the story. But to sort of be around a little Jesus figure basically in our life and to pull off what we were saying is to be close to the only only one who's holy. I think in Second Samuel, it says only God is holy. You know, and so there's just that, there's this question almost there, right? This tension of, well, how can we be holy then? And the answer isn't, well, God changed his mind, uh, that, that there can be more than one holy one. The answer is the only holy one lives inside those who aren't holy. And therefore, they somehow share in his holiness. And I think that the best metaphor you get for this in life and Bible is a marriage, when the two become one flesh. And Ephesians 5 talks about this. It's this very mysterious union idea that we have with God and, and with Christ. And it's his holiness then that's, that's worked out uh, kind of through us and outside of us. And that we just share and even too, apart from what we do, uh, it's a state of being as well uh, by faith. And, and to use Paul's language, not by the flesh or not by what we do, but, but by the spirit to walk uh, in light of the spirit and the fact that he saves us by grace, not by works. Yeah. And I just to add one more thing here. I think, um, it's worth just kind of taking an inventory in the ways that we've maybe took stock of, of holiness over the years, because I know early in my Christian life, I had this idea of holiness that looked like the most morally upright law abiding, uh, Christian citizen I could think of. Um, and I, I just don't think that that's what uh, Peter has in mind when he's writing this. And I don't think that's ultimately what God has in mind when writing, when writing this. Because even if you think about getting around that person, are you really yourself around them? Or are you very self-reflective and constantly thinking about not doing a misstep? And I just don't get the impression that ultimately that's what you would be like around Jesus. 
Instead, Jesus seems to have flipped the script on everything, starting with life itself, that life comes through death. He showed us that, right? And he begins to uh, turn everything upside down of what we thought we were pursuing. Even in our projects of trying to be holy, he's saying, no, 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 it's not like that. Like the, the people that he gets in the most fights with or the most arguments with are those who are trying to put a definitions around what holiness really looks like so that God might be pleased with us. And he's going, you're just totally missing the point. You're just completely missing it. And what I'm trying to do is, is set the world right side up because we have ultimately run away from God and come up with all these little projects of what we think holiness is. But now in light of Jesus, holiness looks like uh, suffering. Holiness looks like uh, losing. Holiness looks like being around those who, who have really gotten a, a handle on that because they're going to look out to God and try and get close to him uh, based on all that he's done for us. And so uh, you, you're just not, when you come into contact with people like that, who are putting others before themselves and who are just not about them, they're just not even thinking about themselves. They're self-forgetful at the end of the day because they're really close to Jesus. Uh, he's the one who's putting the, the, the definitions around holiness. And that's good mm. news for us. And if that's true, then the law and the rules are, go, I mean, going to fight against holiness in a way because they're, they're, they, they, by definition, make you think about yourself because they're saying, do this with your time and abstain from this with your time and change yourself into this kind of new state of being. And so it, it, it almost like precludes the, the, the selflessness that you're talking about, you know, and, I, and I'd agree. I'd say the holiest people that I feel like I've known in my life are self-deprecating in their humor. They, they don't strike you as someone who's about, who are about the rules as much, but just people who are thinking about Jesus and, and about others and love to laugh at themselves. And if they see themselves as the biggest problem and, but no, Jesus is the solution. So they're not anxious about it, that kind of stuff, you know, but it just looks like a life of release and openness and, and peace and love. The things the Bible's actually talking about. And I think instructing is a Christian way of living, like love and humility and other centeredness, not trusting the self, like you were saying earlier, that actually comes by a way of grace uh, much more than it does by way of just blatant kind of cold law or even instruction. What a relief. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod.